Well, good morning again. Good to see you. I want to um, make our church aware, you probably know this, Miss Mallory Tedder, who's a member of our students, is the homecoming uh, queen for Southeast High School this year, just named. So, Mallory, congratulations to you. We love you. And we're, it's good. And Patrick and Stephanie, it's really good to see you guys with us. And y'all been married a month now, right? A month. How about that? Newlywed. So they're here. Be sure you speak to them. Great young couple. Our church is blessed to have great students, great young couples in our church. We're deeply blessed by that. This morning I want to talk to you about John chapter 11. Uh, if you were here Easter Sunday, and a lot of you were, you probably heard me preach about this. As we were going through the book of John, I said, well... I could either skip this or we could uh, cover it again. So I said, let's cover it again. This is such a great scripture, such great passage. Uh, you're not going to get the same sermon, uh, not going to get the same message. I, um, I couldn't do that. I, I, don't, I, I don't think I could preach the same sermon the second time, but I certainly am not going to do that today. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this passage in terms of two big points that I think are really important. And, and I'm going to leave you with those. I'm not going to, as, as we would say, go through the whole passage. I'm going to read through a lot of it, but I'm not going to talk about a lot of it. I'm, I want to spend time on two points. And I want to answer two big questions for us today. I, I want you to leave with an understanding of where is God when he doesn't come and how powerful is his resurrection from the dead. What does that mean for us? I want to I want to answer those two questions for you. I want you to know that today. One's a very practical question because every one of us have asked that question. Where is God when I needed him? Where where is God when I prayed for him? And every one of us have to know how powerful the resurrection is. We have to know what it's done. And sometimes as Christians I think we take it for granted. So I I want to talk about those two things. What a great passage. Let me, I'm going to pray today. I I normally read and then pray over the scripture, but I'm going to pray and then we're going to preach because I'm not going to read 44 verses to you, but we're going to talk about them. And uh, I want to get started. God, thank you for this privilege that we have in your word. Thank you for the power of your word. And I pray, Lord, as it has changed me, that it will change us today. Lord, pour it over our hearts. Go beyond our flaws and our imperfections and the inadequacy of the speaker. But, Lord, use the power of your word to speak to us in the need that we have. Lord, we thank you for giving it to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. I called this the resurrection in our life. It is about the resurrection in our life. Our life. It is. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. But this is about our life. It has to apply to us. There's not a person in this sanctuary, not a person in our community, not anybody you don't know that hasn't felt or experienced the sting of death. It is a part of our life. It is the result of our sin. The Bible teaches us. One theologian said, death is the great horror made by sin. Physical death shows us graphically what sin does to us. As physical death ends our life and separates us from loved ones, spiritual death also ends our life and separates us from God. But Christ, and and listen, you're already getting the main point up front. Christ came to defeat death and to give us abundant life. That's 
That's why he came. That's his purpose for being here. We always say there's something in the future about Jesus. There is something in the future, but there's something now. He came to give us abundant life. Over over in chapter 10, he said that I came that you would have abundant life. And that's life, not always joyful, not always in our terms, but abundant, full, complete. Joy that only he brings. Jesus will say later in John that he brings a peace to us that only he brings. But we have to know what God's promised. Physical death for a believer is a temporary separation. Physical death for the non-believer is a temporary separation followed by a second death. That's far more devastating. That's eternal. So Christ gives a solution for that. So two points. Two points. Number one, we do not fully understand God and his love for us in life's greatest crisis. We do not. I I will tell you that you and I have all prayed for things that we did not receive. We have all prayed for healing and healing didn't come. We have all prayed for a job that we didn't get. We've all prayed from relief from a family problem that never came. We've all seen our loved ones slip away. Our prayers are desperate and persistent and heartfelt, all the things the Bible calls for. And we say, what in the world happened? I'm going to tell you, Christians, you believers, if you're a believer in Christ, you have to know the answer to this question. You have to. And for our students and for our children who are downstairs, they may not have experienced the sting of death. But I'll tell you, you guys grow up so fast, you probably have. And if you haven't, you will. So you have to know about God's love for you in our greatest crises. And when I did this Easter, I thought about it, but I didn't do it. Because I didn't have time because I was trying to go through the whole passage and talk to you about it. But I'm going to talk to you today about about God and about why we can count on God in our crises. And and I'm going to start off with dispelling some of the things that people say about God, especially in their prayers. So there's there are really three things here that people will often say. These are wrong answers about unanswered prayer. The, The first thing that people will say is your prayers weren't sufficient. You didn't pray right. If you prayed like I pray or like I can teach you to pray, uh, you would got a different result. That is not biblical. Some people will say your faith isn't enough. That the reason your prayers weren't answered is that your faith wasn't enough. And thirdly, some people say, well, you know, God always wants to answer your prayer your way. And, and I will tell you, if you read the Bible... You'll never find that in the Bible. Uh, most of you have been parents. Do you always give your children everything they want? When they were growing up, did you give your children everything they wanted? Well, of course not. That would, that would ruin them. They would be spoiled beyond belief if they, we gave them everything they wanted. God doesn't always grant our prayers our way. And I just refer you to the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before Jesus died, he got on his knees. He prayed He prayed so earnestly that blood came out of his forehead. He prayed that the cup of suffering and death could be taken away from him. 
if there was any way he said do that. And the father didn't take it. The father sent Jesus to the cross. So don't ever think that God will always give you what you ask for. Uh, I've learned as I got older, I'm glad God hasn't given me some of the things I asked for. In the wisdom of age, I imagine if the Lord leaves me here, if I stay here a long time more, I will learn a lot more about why I'm glad God didn't always answer my prayer my way. But these are three fallacies. And they're followed by other wrong answers. One, people have a misperception of God that God doesn't answer prayer. Well, if you believe that God doesn't answer prayer, you haven't read the Bible. Because the Bible is filled with examples of how he's answered prayer. I love in the uh, parable of the persistent widow, one of my most favorite passages about persistent prayer. And Jesus himself says, will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay in helping him? I tell you, he will swiftly grant them justice. Jesus himself said, God answers prayer. Um, Sometimes we think God doesn't move, isn't moved by our prayer. He's not changed. I've heard people say that. I've, I've heard say you can't, you can't change the mind of God. Well, if you believe that, you never read 2 Kings 20. When King Hezekiah was given a terminal illness, had a terminal illness, he prayed out to God for all the work that he'd done. He asked God for more time and God granted that. And this is what he said. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I will heal you on the third day. You'll go up to the Lord's temple and I'm going to add 15 years to his life. So Hezekiah lived 15 more years. I imagine to Hezekiah, that was a great gift. But now Hezekiah has probably been dead for 3,000 years. So even that granted prayer wasn't a relief from death. But prayer does move God. Then I hear, and I hear it a lot from people, that God doesn't really have the power to answer prayer. That God can't do that. And we hear that proclaimed in pulpits today because people say that God is not, uh, that he's not a powerful God. That the things of the world go on and God doesn't intervene or can intervene or won't intervene. So God does indeed have the power. I'm going to go through with you quickly. Some after, I'm going to give you a short theology lesson on God this morning. I want you to understand some of the things the Bible says about him before we get into this passage. First of thing that we have to understand about God. You've got to know this. And in order to understand how God deals with you in a crisis, you have to know who God is. First of thing that we have to know is God is all loving. He is all loving. That is his nature. You and I think that we love each other. We love our children. We love our spouse. Our love pales in comparison to God's love for us. His love is not just temporary, it's eternal. It crosses all the boundaries. God loves us when we're at our best and when we're at our worst. He loves us all the time. That's the nature of God. He He loves us. Uh, Jesus gave us a comparison. He said, you know, you guys, y'all, y'all, and he said, you who are evil love your children. How much more does your heavenly father love you? That's the example we need to see. God's all powerful. There's not anything that God can't do. He created the heavens and the earth. There's nothing he can't do. God's power is limitless. Answering any prayer, answering any request, doing anything, performing any deed is within his power and the realm of his capability. God knows everything, past, present, and future. There's not anything that God doesn't know. He's not surprised by the events of this world. Some people say, and I've heard this 
said, well, I'm sure God is disappointed in the world. He doesn't, there's not anything happening that he didn't think would happen. He knew exactly. He is, he is fully aware. There's no picture of the future that he doesn't know. There's not any detail of the past that he can't recall. Everything. He knows about the most insignificant little animal in Siberia. And he knows the burdens that your children and your grandchildren and your parents bear. He knows all of it. He's got it all. God is everywhere. The theological term is omnipresent. He's He's in your heart. He's in my heart. He's in the heart of someone suffering across our country. He is everywhere. He, there is nowhere he isn't. There's no dark place you can go. You can't get away from God. Can't run far enough. Ask Job. Ask Jonah. They tried. They couldn't get away from God. God controls everything. It is all under his domain. Nothing is beyond his sovereignty. There's nothing not in his realm. That includes death. It includes illness. It includes poverty. It includes prosperity. It includes circumstance, war, peace, culture. All of that is within God's realm. God is completely holy and righteous. There is not anything in God that is not holy and righteous. And if you want to see what God is, you you look at his word. His word gives us a picture of his holiness and righteousness. He is, he is completely without sin. He is not capable of sin. It is not even in his nature to sin. He is completely holy and righteous. God is full of grace and mercy. You know, I, I love this one. The Bible refers to him often as God of grace and mercy. He gives grace and mercy. I mean, he is the ultimate fulfillment of what grace and mercy is. He is always consistent. His decisions embody the entirety of all of his attributes. You see, God doesn't make a decision and say, well, if I, you know, I often say this, if I err, I try to err on the side of doing something this way. Well, God doesn't err. So he doesn't have to err on the side of anything. All of his decisions are completely just and wise and good and merciful and graceful and loving. They embody all of him. You gotta know that before you open the story of Lazarus. So when we look at this story, with those things in mind, we can now look briefly at this passage. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. In verse 1, we see that he was sick. Lazarus came from Bethany, the village of Martha, and her sister, or Mary and her sister Martha. Martha was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And that was accounted for in Luke's gospel. And it was the brother Lazarus who was sick. You see, Lazarus was a friend. He and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were friends of Jesus. The Bible tells us that that they sent a message. The sisters sent a message. Lord, the one you love is sick. So Jesus had been in their home. This was a place that perhaps he liked to let his own hair down, that he relaxed. He'd spent an evening with them. He'd been with them before. He liked this place. They were his friends. They called on him expecting. They didn't say, Lord, you need to come quick. They said, the one you love is sick. They figured Jesus would put down his stuff and run to them right there. He would be there. Because he loved him. I want to tell you something you may not know. In, in the, uh, right there in verse three, it says, the Lord, the one you love is sick. And up here in verse, um, in verse five, it says, now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Do, do you, 
if we don't miss this in the in the English language, but in the in the Greek language, the words love are different. The word love in verse three, Lord, the one you love, is philios. He's he's your brother. You love him like a brother. They said, Lord, the one that that you love like a brother is sick. But up in verse five. It says that Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. That word is agape. It's the love of God. He loved them back the way God loves. So his love, his actual love was more powerful. It was more deep. It was more comprehensive. It encompassed all of God. So Jesus loved his brother Lazarus more than he knew. And Jesus heard this in verse 4, and he responded, probably the key to this whole passage. And when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. You see, all of us would read this passage, and we'd say, this all is about Lazarus and him being raised from the dead. But Jesus said right here, this passage is about the glory of God. This whole event would occur so that the Son of God might be glorified. He wouldn't be glorified by raising Lazarus from the dead, but he would be glorified because from this event would come some of the conflict and strife that would cause Jesus to be arrested and his will on earth would be completed. So Lazarus raising would throw into action the events that would allow God's Son to be glorified on the cross. That's the lesson number one. That when you don't have an answer to a question, when you don't have an answer to a question, realize that God might be working somewhere else. He might be working through you to do something else, but he loves you and he cares about you and he's involved with you, but he might be working elsewhere. He was working elsewhere today. Verse 6 gives us a telling Solution. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. One, one writer said, you would have expected Jesus to go to one of his disciples, got a fast horse, and rode as fast as he could to Bethany. But the Lord waited two days. Don't you hate it when he waits? Don't you hate it when you call on him and he's not there? When, when it seems like God is not answering or he's not listening or he's silent, I hear so often, I've prayed and I've prayed and I hear nothing. He didn't come. He didn't answer. Joseph in the Bible lived his whole life out, was an honorable, godly young fellow, sold into slavery by his brothers. He was able by his wit and ingenuity and hard work and God's blessing to rise up in the Egyptian household of Potiphar only to be thrown in jail because Mrs. Potiphar Tried to make an advance on him and he rejected it. He rejected it because he was a godly man. So it seems like Joseph's life was spinning out of control and he was right square doing what God called him to do. That's the lesson out of the Bible. We need to know that. When a loved one dies, we cry out for help. We wonder if God cares. When a believer is falsely accused, we, we pray and we ask God to step in and intervene. And sometimes he doesn't. When we plan some great event for God and it falls flat, where was God? What happened to him? It's really hard sometimes to keep our faith all the time. But John chapter 11 raises our thinking up. It tells us that God might be doing something else. 
He, he might be working in another place. He might be blessing in another way. He might be working out another plan. He can do anything. He loves you with infinite love. God's not always going to come when you want him. We have to know that we will never comprehend his workings entirely. You will not. Mary and Martha did not understand the delay of Jesus. They couldn't grasp it. They weren't told what it was. He didn't tell anybody. He just didn't go for two days. And his disciples, they're, they're concerned. He said this in verse 11 and then told them, his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. And his disciples said, Lord, he was, they thought he was, Jesus was speaking about death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. Jesus said, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. So there, there we begin to see the story unfold. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus here is talking about death and sleep as a synonymous term. You know, believers, you need to hear that and you need to be aware of that because death to us seems final and complete and absolute separation. It seems like something that we cannot overcome. But to Jesus, death is sleep. It doesn't mean that his soul is asleep and and a lot of people get the concept of soul sleep here. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, no, he's asleep. It's temporary. I'm going to go wake him up because death can be defeated. Death has no, no, death has met its match right here with Christ. He's more powerful than death because, you know, I told you that he is God. And so God is in control of everything. Death will die with Lazarus. I'm glad I wasn't there so that you might believe. You see, the disciples needed to learn about Jesus. They had seen all these miracles. They'd seen all of these things. They'd seen him raise people that were dead, maybe just briefly dead. They'd seen him heal lepers. They'd seen him heal blind people. They'd seen him take people that were mentally ill that nobody had a solution for. And he touched their body and they were made well again. They'd seen all these miraculous things. But now he's going to really do something to open up their eyes in faith. Verse 17 Jesus went that way. It's only two miles. It's only two miles. He stayed four days and it's two miles. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. And that day when a funeral was conducted, they, on the day of death, they wrapped someone and cleaned them and washed their body and wrapped them in nice cloths and they carried them to the tomb in a funeral procession. The family laid them in the tomb and mourners lined the side and they put them in the tomb and they closed it up because there was an air conditioning and embalming and all those things and folks began to decay. So four days later, he shows up. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet them. But Mary remained seated in the house. I felt like Mary before. Maybe a little bit mad. (laughs) What do I need to go over there for now? He shows up four days later. Martha said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Boy, I can appreciate that. God, if you'd answered that prayer, if you, if you would have fixed this thing when we had a chance, he wouldn't have died. They wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have been gone. This marriage could have been saved. I could have got my job back. If you would have just did what you do, 
But listen to Martha's faith. Yet even now I know whatever you ask from God that God will give you. Martha in all of her, maybe a little bit of anger, maybe, maybe certainly a lot of grief. She said, but I know, I know a little bit about who you are. And I know that even now, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She knew enough about Jesus to know that. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And I think Martha misunderstood this as kind of an intellectual discussion. Uh, yeah, Lord, I know he will rise again on the resurrection at the last day. But she needed something now. You see, Martha shows us something that's really important. That our faith is vital to our success with God. When when. That we absolutely have to trust him. We have to know who he is. We have to understand God. We have to wait on God's timing. We have to be patient with what God has said in his word. We have to wait. You have to know who God is. We have to look to God for solutions. We have to recognize that when we're in a crisis, God has got this matter in his hands. We have to know that he's all powerful, that he loves us, that he cares for us. We got to go to him for solutions. I've seen Christians, good Christian people, fall away from God because they didn't go to him in a, in a crisis. You know, I've, I've learned in some of the crises of my life, I thought the crisis was about one thing. I found the crisis was about me learning about God. Because the things that I learned about God are eternal in value, and the things that I'm asking God for are temporary on earth. And God often teaches us eternal lessons that way. You have to know you'll never understand his workings. If you ever pray and you say, I gotta know why this happened, you're just wasting your time. I mean, I don't know that God's ever revealed why he did something. He's never explained that to me. He's never taught me that. I've seen, I've seen goodness come out of tragedy in my life, but I've, I for the life of me could never explain away that tragedy with it. I have to trust God. That's what Mary and Martha did. And so the second thing I want you to see is that the defeat of death is the most powerful, profound benefit that we have in the Bible. I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Do you, do you know that? Do you really believe that? I mean, I hope that if you're a believer today, I, I hope that you believe that with all your heart. I mean, the Bible revolves around the resurrection of Jesus. It revolves around the fact that he defeated death. I hope that you know the answer to that question, do you, do you believe that will happen again? And Jesus said in verse 25, he said this, and you ought to have this marked in your Bible. And when you're discouraged or when you're beaten down or when you seem overwhelmed, you ought to go back to this passage. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? I'm the resurrection and life. I looked for a long time, A.J., to try to really understand, what does that mean? I am the resurrection of life. And and you know what I am? It means I'm God. That I'm God and I, I control resurrection. I mean, I am the source of resurrection. It flows out of Christ. It's not something he does. It is who he is. I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I have the power and the authority and the willingness and the authorization from God to do it. Resurrection flows out of Christ. And then people like me, 
We stop there and we just kind of read that and think that's a really nice statement. But then he says, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. So even in the face of death that we know is absolutely irreversible, that we don't know any way around it. I am like you. I've seen death many times. It It is unbelievably ir- irreversible. But Jesus said, no, no. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. So not even death will stop the resurrection. And that, you say, well, that's a stupid thing to say. But that's exactly what Jesus said. Not even death stops the resurrection. That if somebody believes in me, he'll live again. Death won't defeat him. If you've lost loved ones that are believers in Christ, they will live again. They are alive today because of Christ. They did not die. And then he says... For the rest of us who are still struggling to keep up. It says everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And you say, well, Jim, I could dispute that. Jesus calls what we experience here sleep. It's temporary. In fact, Paul describes it more, more in more detail. He says that to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Our, our last breath in this world is our first breath in eternity. We don't, we don't die. We don't go to sleep in the grave. Our bodies sleep until the resurrection, but our soul is alive with God. We're studying the book of Revelation and we see gathered around the throne of God are all the people who've died in Christ over the ages. That's where we go. Right to the throne of God. There's no death. And I love, I love what Martha did here. Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. See, Martha was able to look past her own grief and her own sorrow. Jesus just taught her a lesson on death. And she said, I I know I, I got it for just a minute. I got it. Have you had those moments before? Sometimes in loss and tragedy, sometimes in the deepest time of grief, you get a glimpse. That's church. That's why when you're in a time of great difficulty, you need to be in God's word. Because God will speak these words right to your heart. That's why. You know, some people say, well, you know, when I'm, when I'm in deep grief, I just can't pray. I just can't read the Bible. I know you can't, but you make yourself do it. You do it. Because God will speak to you these words that death has been defeated right to your heart. It's here for you. Never die. We, we go through the story. Jesus goes, he travels back to the to the village. Martha met him out at the road. In verse 32, it says, As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was, she fell at his feet and told him again, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Both of those sisters are looking to their friend. Lord, you could have helped me. I want you to see this. And Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who came with her were crying. He was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Here's, here's God. This, here's Jesus, the son of God. He's the, he's the, he's the resurrection in the life. He knows that he's getting ready to perform a miracle that's gonna turn this whole place upside down. But he looks at his friends that he loves and cares for. He sees the grief and the sorrow and he's moved. The word deeply moved is he's troubled in his spirit. He's moved by that. I, I like that. That tells me when I grieve, he's moved by that. 
And, and then it says, as he went and they told him, they said, where have you put him? Jesus asked and they told him and he said, come and see the Bible. The shortest verse in the whole Bible is verse 35. Jesus wept. This isn't a wailing. It's not a crying like the ladies were doing. This is a tear going down his cheek and a broken heart. So Jesus sees the grief that you and I have, even though he understands grief from from an eternal viewpoint. You and I don't see grief from an eternal viewpoint. We, we see it that we lost a loved one or that we lost a job or we lost this or lost that. We, we have that kind of grief. Jesus can see the, see beyond that, but yeah, he sees us in our pain and he sees and he wept. You ought to be encouraged by that. That God and all of his power and all, all of his might and all of his knowledge and all of the things that he's done and then, and then John tells us that Hebrews 1, 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And John 1, 18 says no one's ever seen God, but God, the only son who's at the father's side has made him known. So if Jesus wept, we know that God weeps as well. He has that kind of concern and love for us as well. Isn't that great that God loves us so much? Because sometimes we think, oh, you little child, you, you just don't know. But no, he looks at our grief and he's broken with it. Oh, but the story gets better. In verse 40, in verse 38, Jesus was deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. He saw, he saw the grave of his friend, the, the one that he loved with a godly love. It was a cave and a stone lying against it. Been in there four days. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he's been here four days. You can't take that stone off. Jesus looked at her and said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I love that. You you understand the key to this, don't you? It's his faith. Didn't I say if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I think sometimes we don't see the glory of God because we just don't believe. And I, and I understand how hard that is in grief. I understand in loss and pain and suffering how difficult it is. But that's what we have to do. We have to focus on who God is. We have to set before him our, his word. We have to read it, meditate on it, and pray about it. And we have to make it a part of who we are. Because in his faith, in our faith for what God can do, we see his glory. That's why Christians come out on the other side of grief and they say, you know, I'm broken and torn up by this, but I've learned more about God than I ever knew. Because in the midst of their sorrow, they learned about God. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God. And verse 41, of course, is great. They removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes up to heaven. Father, I thank you. You heard me. I know you always hear me. But because the crowds are standing here, I say this, that they may believe you sent me. Jesus wasn't asking God for a prayer to give him power. He was thanking God for what he's going to do. He already knew it was going to happen. And he said, he's glad this crowd could be around him to see it all. And then he called in a loud voice. Lazarus come out. Warren Wearsby said that if he hadn't said Lazarus, it had emptied the whole tomb. Everybody would have walked out. But Lazarus came out, been dead in the tomb four days. Had to undo the bandages, had some details that had to be attended to. A believer's death brings new life. Did you hear that? A believer's death brings new life. Not, not anything like we've seen. I mean, when we say goodbye to a loved one, they're usually racked by illness or tragedy or death, and they're sick and worn out. But the Bible teaches us that that person is more alive than ever. New life. New life. Not like the old life. 
at the end of physical life is sleep for the body, but not for the soul, right to the presence of God. That's the key to defeating death. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection because we know, you see, Christ would go from here to the cross and then there he would be resurrected from the dead. And and the miracle of Lazarus was a really great thing. We're going to read about Lazarus next week again when he's having a celebration with his... You know, what they talk about? Can you imagine? What did Lazarus talk about? But we're going to read about that. Jesus would go to the cross. Then he'd be resurrected. See, Lazarus would die again. But when Jesus walked out of the tomb, he would he would come out, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits of the resurrection. He'd be a whole new kind of resurrection. Because his body would be made for eternity. He wouldn't wear out. Lazarus died again. This body wouldn't die again. Jesus would be, so when you and I are resurrected again on the last day, our bodies will be imperishable. They will not be sown in sin. They'll be sown in God's presence and God's glory. They won't have the capability to sin. We won't be made sanctified. We will be made. We will actually be holy. That's what the promise of a believer. That's why our perishable bodies have to put on imperishable nature. To That's why Paul said that death is swallowed up in victory. I love that word. I have contemplated that so many times. Death, as bad and terrible and overwhelming as it seems, when it's surrounded by the resurrection, is swallowed up in victory. How about that, church? So let me conclude. Revelation 21.4 said that He will wipe every tear from their eyes. In the time of eternity, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For these previous things have passed away. What a fantastic future is out there for us. But what an out now. I mean, right now we deal with death and dying and illness and difficulty. Let me leave you with a couple of things. God's delays are always delays of love. You may not understand them. You may not be able to explain them. You may not comprehend them but you have to know the nature of God I believe with all my heart and every matter of my being and the imperfection of my faith that what God has told us is absolutely true in God's nose there are no's of love he always loves us out in the midst of that you know I wonder why God says no sometimes David Burroughs and I had a time to share. We were together Friday and he shared with me a great story and I was able to hear this. Um, Sam, um, Sam Jones recently spoke at the Summit Church in Durham. I don't know if you've heard of the Summit Church. J.D. Greer's pastor. He spoke there. He's, he's the longest serving, he's the oldest pastor of the church, but he never preached in the church. And Sam Jones, in 1961, was called to be a missionary. And he and his family was getting ready to go overseas to the mission field. And they were all excited and made all the preparation and did all the things that missionaries have to do. He prayed and got the support of his church, blessing. He was going out. But his son got sick. And so he had to spend a year in Durham getting his son better from cancer. And they were able to help him. But during that time, Sam started a little house church. He thought, well, I, I don't know why God didn't want me to be a missionary. I don't, I don't know all about that. So he started a little house church. 
And when he left, they had 20 people in their house. 20 people. In fact, when he left, his last Sunday, they were moving to a larger building, a little bit bigger building, because they couldn't quite fit everybody in one house. Sam went on the mission field. He always wondered why God did that. Until God grew that little church to the Summit Church, the largest Southern Baptist church in North Carolina, 10,000 members, over 500 church plants. You see, Sam thought, Sam thought God had left him by the wayside, but he was doing a work he could never imagine. So Sam came back a few weeks ago and spoke at the church that he started, but never preached at. How about that? That's how God works. Church, I want you to know that God is always who he is. He loves you. He never forgets that. There's not one loss or tragedy or sorrow or death that's lost on God. He hasn't abandoned you or set you aside. You might feel that way. But our job as believers is to trust him, to dig into his word, and learn more about the one that loves us so much. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Press it upon our heart today. Teach us and show us. Move us to respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.